Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We are so glad you're with us. It's a very busy morning on the global stage. Global stage and domestic as well. It's crazy how much news is happening in this first week of September. Kids are back in school. school. The news is back. It is it is September 6th. And new this morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on the ground. He just got there in Ukraine. He will meet with President Zelensky in about a half an hour. The unannounced trip comes as the counteroffensive grinds on slower than expected. And happening today, we will see the first televised hearing in the Georgia election, election subversion case after former President Trump and all 18 of his co-defendants have pleaded not guilty. And what the judge decides could have a major impact on Trump's very busy calendar. Also today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will talk behind closed doors about his health with the Senate Republican Conference after two freezing incidents in just two months. The Capitol doctor says the Kentucky senator shows no signs of stroke or a seizure disorder. More than 200 law enforcement officers are now searching still for that escaped murderer a week after he broke out of a prison right near Philadelphia. They have a plan to try to stress him into making a mistake so that they can capture him. Two school districts remaining closed again this morning as this manhunt intensifies. And new overnight, the world has just experienced the hottest summer on record by a lot. The heat is so extreme here in the U.S., it's forcing school closings and early dismissals. CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin following all the breaking news this morning. Right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Kyiv. This is a surprise visit, his third since the war in Ukraine began. He will meet very shortly with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. It's a major show of solidarity from the West during a critical phase of the war as Ukrainian troops struggle to break through in this counteroffensive. I'm here first and foremost to demonstrate our ongoing and determined support for Ukraine as it deals with this aggression. Um, we've seen good progress in the counteroffensive. It's very heartening. We want to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term. To make now, right before Secretary Blinken arrived, Russia launched a barrage of missiles at the capital city of Kyiv, a stark reminder that America's top diplomat is very much in a war zone. Now, his visit also comes as recent polls show American public support for more U.S. aid to Ukraine is starting to wane. U.S. support has been an absolutely essential lifeline for the Ukrainians up to this point. Melissa Bell is live for us on the ground in Kyiv. Melissa, what are you hearing about the reaction to this surprise visit so far? Well, these kinds of visits, of course, are tremendously important to the Ukrainian people, first and foremost, Phil, because, of course, as you mentioned, uh, this grinding counteroffensive coming as it does, uh, we're now 19 months into a war that is tiring the entire world, the allies, of course. But imagine for a moment uh, the Ukrainian 
people at this stage. So it is incredibly important in terms of showing support, but it comes at a critical juncture, first of all, for the counteroffensive. And what we understand is that Secretary Blinken is here, first of all, to hear what the Ukrainian assessment is uh, of a counteroffensive that you heard him speak to there a moment ago. The, the, the State Department's assessment is that the gains have been impressive. But he's here to hear what the Ukrainians have to say about it, what more help they need in terms of being able to make progress on the battlefield. But it also, this visit comes at a critical juncture in terms of uh, Western continued support uh, for this war 19 months in. Bear in mind that it comes less than a month after President Biden went to Congress to ask for an extra uh, $24 billion of help uh, for uh, this war effort at a time, as you mentioned, Phil, uh, when polls show a softening of support for that. It's also, of course, time just ahead of the UN General Assembly, and that's going to be about aligning, we hear, uh, the American and the Ukrainian message uh, as Ukraine's president prepares to go and speak to the rest of the world about what uh, is happening with this war and why he needs uh, those 50-plus countries that are currently giving uh, not just moral and financial support, but military support, humanitarian aid, need to stick uh, with it. Uh, so it's about speaking uh, to both publics at an incredibly uh, critical time. There's been this criticism that the counteroffensive hasn't progressed as quickly as it should, uh, and so it's going to be about finding exactly what progress is being made how they can further it, and bringing that message then back uh, to the United States first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. A really significant day. We're glad you're on the ground. Melissa Bell, thank you very much. We also have a new development this morning in the federal case against former President Trump and his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Special counsel Jack Smith accusing Trump of making, quote, daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool. That's part of a court fight that remains largely under seal that Smith is currently uh, battling to put on the public docket while Trump's team wants it to remain that way, remain sealed. Judge Tanya Chutkin is now giving both sides until next week to submit their arguments. Meantime, in Georgia, all 19 defendants in that state election interference case have now entered a not guilty plea. They have waived their right to arraignments. Former Trump White House chief of staff Mark Meadows is among them. He's trying to move his case, remember, to federal court where it could be dismissed by him invoking federal worker immunity. Also happening today, the judge overseeing the case is holding a televised hearing. So that's key to address scheduling of this trial, one of four, um, that could begin as early as next month. Sarah Murray joins us now with more. Good morning to you, Sarah. This, let's just start with this filing by the special counsel, the lead prosecutor, Jack Smith. It's really interesting, basically saying, watch what you say, because what you say can taint a jury pool. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, some of the underlying fight around this, as you point out, is still a mystery because it's still under seal. But we know that Donald Trump has been out there making bombastic statements about the, the charges he faces in a number of these cases, about the prosecutors who are bringing them. And we saw uh, the special counsel's team make this argument about these kinds of what they call prejudicial statements that Donald Trump is making when they were seeking a pretty quick trial date from Tanya Chutkin, the judge in this case, pointing out that it's going to be really hard to choose a fair jury pool, a jury pool that's not contaminated, the longer that you have the former president out there essentially railing against the cases against him. So it's interesting that they're again bringing this up in court filings, Bobby. You know, sir, getting back to Georgia, we're, we're getting our first look at the schedule of the trial. Uh, it'll be a televised hearing. In your sense, you've done so much reporting on this particular case and the lead up to it. And since the indictment was brought, just how quickly could this all move? This is a great question for the judge to work out. I was asking you, though, Sarah. <laughs> you are the judge on this show, Sarah Murray. 
I am not envious of what this judge has to do. He has these 19 defendants. He is buried in paperwork from all of them filing these different motions about when they want to go to trial and who they definitely don't want to go to trial alongside of. So today is going to give us the first sense, one, from the district attorney of realistically how long does she think it would take to try all 19 of these folks together versus in different groups? How many witnesses does she think she would call? How many exhibits does she think she would have? Uh, and then for the judge to give us maybe some insight into how he's thinking about this organizationally, because it, it's a mess, guys. Hmm. It's a mess. You don't get to go yet. We have another. But on a serious note, this sentence that came down yesterday, 22 mm -hmm. years yesterday afternoon for the Proud Boys leader, Enrico Tario, longest sentence so far of any of the January 6th defendants, a seditious conspiracy here, very significant. But I was really struck, Sarah, by the words that the judge chose to use when explaining the sentence. Yeah, I mean, this was a very interesting sentencing. The judge took a lot more time in laying out his sentence for Enrique Tario than he did for some of uh, his fellow Proud Boys who were convicted and also faced lengthy sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, they faced upwards of 10 or 15 years, but Tario is the only one who is cracking this 20-year mark with a 22-year sentence. First, let's just talk about some of the things Enrique Tario said at the sentencing, you know, sort of sure. trying to, you know, defend himself. He said, I'm not a political zealot inflicting harm or changing the outcome of the election was not my goal. He said, I held myself morally above others, and this trial has shown me how wrong I was. The judge in this case essentially pointed out that Enrique Tario was sort of the ringleader of this. Even though he was not physically present in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, he had already been ordered to leave the city because he was arrested on another matter. They still said you were the ringleader. You were the guy who essentially helped to organize this and helped to make this happen. And the judge said, it's not my job to label anybody a terrorist and nothing I do today does that in one way or another. But he was very pointed in saying that this is not what the founders of our country had in mind and essentially saying, you know, that that Tario may have viewed himself as some sort of patriot, but that's not what patriots in this country actually do. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting distinction. Uh, another distinction, Sarah Marie is not the judge uh, in the Georgia Alexis diversion case. Uh, we wish, but we're going to act like it because you know all the things. <laughs> Sarah Murray, thanks so much. All the things. Thanks. Well, an extremely dangerous convicted murderer still on the loose nearly a week after escaping prison in Pennsylvania. We're going to tell you how searchers are trying to force him to make a mistake. And just hours from now, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will meet with Senate Republicans. This meeting, those behind closed doors, members of his party. Uh, have questions about his health. I think it's an inadequate explanation to say this is dehydration. Well, brand new this morning, two school districts will remain closed today as about 200 law enforcement officers search for an escaped murderer in eastern Pennsylvania. Now, that manhunt, it's entering its seventh day. The U.S. Marshal Service says the goal is to, quote, stress him out of hiding. This is a dangerous game of tactical hide and seek. This is a dangerous, dangerous man. He's got nothing to lose, but I can tell you this, his desperateness will not outlast the resolve of our law enforcement officers here. CNN's Danny Freeman is outside the prison where Danilo Calvacante escaped. Danny, where do things stand this morning? 
Well, Phil, at this point this morning, convicted murderer Danilo Cavalcante is still on the loose. But, Phil, I will say we have some reason to believe that this search uh, perimeter may have expanded again. I'll give you a little more information on that in a moment. But just to back up for a second, remember, yesterday was the day where police said that they actually caught Cavalcante on surveillance camera, on trail cameras, actually, in Longwood Gardens. That's a popular tourist destination. It's a little bit south of here, but it is also outside of the initial two-mile radius that law enforcement officials were seeking. So Cavalcante was able to slip out from under them, but the police said that that's actually a byproduct of their system working. They're putting a lot of stress on him and forcing him to move. Of course, police said yesterday that they would have preferred to catch him, but they say that that is a good sign that he is not able to hide. He's actually being pushed into uh, moving and what they hope ultimately means that he'll push to slip up. Uh, so that was yesterday, and that, those trail sightings uh, were back on Monday evening. But then this morning, as we were driving into the area, uh, Phil, there was a heavy police presence a little bit further east along Baltimore Pike. It's one of the main drags out here. Uh, confirmed police activity. However, we're still waiting for official confirmation if that is a sign that this search is expanding. All of this, though, Phil, really continuing to worry neighbors and residents in this area. Take a listen to what uh, one resident nearby had to say. Everyone in this area just hasn't slept. I can't even imagine the people in Water Glen and what they went through. Now that he's gotten out, now it's just, now we get a little bit more sense of how they were feeling for the last three days. It's just tiring, it's exhausting, and just your nerves are on edge and you just second guess everything. Nerves continue to be on edge, Phil. And as you mentioned at the top, those two school districts that were closed yesterday still closed again today. The Unionville Chads Ford School District noted specifically because three of its schools are currently in the search area. And of course, because those roadblocks do keep changing as this manhunt continues. Phil. All right, Danny Freeman for us. Keep us posted. Thank you. So there's a new letter from the Capitol's attending physician, and it's about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health. As he's set to address this issue directly with members of his party today, at least one Democrat is now defending McConnell. Plus, Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville could jeopardize the confirmation of the nation's highest-ranking military officer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We have new CNN reporting. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. So today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to address fellow Republicans behind closed doors about his health after he froze twice in front of reporters. The Capitol's attending physician also releasing a new, pretty short, but important letter yesterday writing, quote, there is no evidence that you have a seizure disorder or that you experienced a stroke, TIA, or movement disorder such as Parkinson's disease. The Kentucky senator later made a passing reference to his freezing episode on the Senate floor. Listen. Now, one particular moment of my time back home has received its fair share of attention in the press over the past week. But I assure you, August was a busy and productive month for me and my staff back in the Commonwealth. Melanie Zanona joins us live in Washington. I mean, a lot has happened since we talked yesterday. You've got McConnell saying that. You've got this letter that's a few sentences that every word is being analyzed. What do we know? Yeah, so the topic of Mitch McConnell's health absolutely dominated the discussions in the hallways yesterday as the Senate returned for the first time from a six-week recess. And I will say that most Republicans are standing by Mitch McConnell, saying they have no concerns about his fitness to serve. And that includes some of his critics and some of his potential successors. But notably, there were several Republicans who were openly expressing concerns about his ability to lead, saying they're not sure whether they would support him again for GOP leader and also casting doubt on that assessment from the Capitol physician. Let's take a listen. I think it's an inadequate explanation to say this is dehydration. Well, I've practiced medicine for 25 years and it doesn't look like dehydration to me. It looks like a focal neurologic event. That doesn't mean it's incapacitating, doesn't mean he can't serve, but it means that somebody ought to wake up and say, wow, this looks like a seizure. I've seen kids, uh, you know, in, in my profession uh, of football uh, really struggle for a long time mm-hmm. after concussions. I mean, it's and that's the reason that you don't play them after that. I mean, they don't go right. back into the game until you're completely well. Now, Mitch McConnell is expected to address the topic of his health during a closed-door party lunch today. Obviously, members still have questions, so that is going to be a critical moment for him. But as one GOP lawmaker put it, McConnell knows that transparency is his friend here. So clearly, there is more of an effort to be more forthcoming with details about his health and what is going on. And then after that party lunch... We are expecting Mitch McConnell to deliver his weekly press conference in front of reporters, in front of cameras, a very similar setting to where we've seen these freezing episodes occur in the past. So no doubt his performance today going to be very closely watched, guys. Yeah, for sure. Lots of questions for Melanie. Thanks very much. Well, joining us now, senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington, and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon. I think there are major questions, and we've discussed them uh, not just in the context of McConnell, but about age generally in politics. But I want to start with kind of the more granular detail of McConnell and his moment and place in the Republican conference, which he has ruled, lorded over, and been very popular within since 2006 and became leader even before then when he was in leadership. For context, Senator Rand Paul, Kentucky senator, and Mitch McConnell do not get along. 
<laughs> they do not like each other. Tuberville, not a big McConnell fan. Josh Hawley also raised some concerns, didn't vote for McConnell to be a leader. If you put this up for a vote right now inside the Senate Republican conference behind closed doors, McConnell would be reelected without any question at all. That's based on everyone I've talked to inside the conference. And yet, there is validity to concerns in this moment. Yeah, I mean, we have seen him now have these episodes twice. It's important that we had the Capitol Hill doctor send out that note. McConnell is apparently talking to people about his health much more openly than before. We know that this is going to be happening behind closed doors. But of course, there are concerns. We watched it happen in real time. We can't all pretend like we didn't see what we see. And this idea that it's only happening when we're watching and that there isn't anything happening behind the scenes is obviously going to feel suspicious to people. Okay, but there are defenders too. Let's play Mitt Romney, what he said. The reality is that we may expect uh, that Mitch McConnell will check out for 20 seconds a day, but the other 86,380 seconds in the day, he does a pretty darn good job. Seconds in a day, John Avalon. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good also, stat to crunch. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, you think he prepped that? Yeah, a little bit. A little, a little bit. bit. Just practice it a three bit. times fast. But also Democratic Senator Chris Murphy to Jake yesterday defended McConnell, saying, I think these are pretty isolated incidents. And he said he's had a chance to interact with the senator and said, quote, I find him to be very much still in charge of that caucus. Well, I think he is very much in, in charge of the caucus, to, to Phil's point. Uh, he's been a very effective leader. Now, actuarially, statistically, you can't pretend that these were the only two times he's had an incident like this where he happened to be in front of cameras. It's presumably uh, a, a larger problem. Um, and I think it does highlight the larger issue of age, particularly within the Senate. And uh, not just Republicans. And not just Republicans. Dianne Feinstein, No, most acutely, Dianne Feinstein. Yeah. Uh, who is, is 90 years old and, and frankly, you know, for, for reasons of her dignity, uh, I, I think is an unfair position to keep putting her in. But that's mm -hmm. a, a related but separate conversation. Um, I think McConnell's going to have to re restore some confidence, but it's obviously a broader conversation we should have about, you know, at what point uh, do people need to need to step aside for, for, for new talent? The rest of the leadership's very capable. To that point, I think, I mean, you were on the Hill forever before the White House. Not forever. You're not very old, How but you old know what I, I mean. <laughs> but but um, let's not get into this conversation. But I think it was, Dana was interviewing Mike Rounds this weekend yeah. and, you know, made the point that does he need to answer questions to the American people, too, right? Not just behind closed doors, but really direct answers in that press conference yeah. today. No, and I, I, Jessica, I think that's, that's an excellent point because you talk to Republican senators, I've talked to several since the second freezing incident who said the same thing that Senator Round said to Dana, which is when you talk to him, it's fine. Like, everything's mm -hmm. fine. We've never seen it before. We've never experienced it. But he is the most powerful Republican, second most powerful Republican in the land. He leads the Senate Republican Conference. And the expectation that he should be transparent is not just because... People are trying to get yeah. juicy things, right? Like, this is important for people. Correct. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that everyone who's having these questions about their age, we know that Joe Biden has had to answer these questions. You know, I think in the same way, Mitch McConnell, just because he's not elected by the entire American public, he still does probably need to answer these questions directly. I think that's completely fair. Yeah, and, and Republicans who are giving McConnell a pass obviously should apply the same thing to their rhetoric around Joe Biden, even without anything resembling the, these sorts, sorts of incidents. So the idea of applying consistent standards across party lines is revelatory these days. Yeah, uh, where but did you get that? I, crazy, crazy. And yet, that is what we should do. Uh, before we go, can we talk about Tommy Tuberville? Because Manu sure. did what Manu does best. It's like a Christmas buffet when, <laughs> when lawmakers <laughs> return from recess. It's like Manu just gathering a million <laughs> threads of great string. 
exactly right. Oh, I love it. It's exactly right, but it highlighted the power of one senator to hold up the most critical yeah. nominations of senior military leaders and the most senior. Listen to this. You know, I'm not budging. I've already told them that. There are several nominees that are major nominees that could be held up by this, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Are you willing to see that position be vacant if this is not resolved by the end of the month? Well, General Milley won't leave, but they, they will bring him individually. Milley went individually anyway. Yeah, they're not. They're, they're, the Democrats are indicating that they're well, not. So then Milley's going to, have to work overtime then. John? What Senator Tuberville is doing is a threat to national security. He is grandstanding on a specific issue. Uh, that is important to him and, and many Republicans, but he's applying it to something to which it's largely unrelated. And he is risking America's readiness, military readiness. The Pentagon could not be more clear. If a Democrat was doing this, Republicans would be screaming bloody murder on the same grounds. Again, apply the same standards. This uh, is outrageous. Your latter point, absolutely no argument and probably underappreciated. The former point, the Tuberville says he's had closed door briefings with the Pentagon and they say he's not convinced that the national security issue is as tangible as they claim publicly. I don't think Senator Trump has more credibility than the Pentagon on this issue. Final thought, Jess? Yeah, I'd have to agree. I mean, it is it is obviously they're saying this is a national security threat. Not only that, it just it's it's hurting morale. I mean, that's something they've been talking about. It clearly seems like an issue that he is going to stand just strong on until someone makes him stop until potentially his party makes him stop. Yeah. Also, we got to go, but a big impact on families is they're trying to move wives that are military spouses who are trying to wives and husbands get a job, et cetera, plan for kids school. All of it, guys. Thank you very much, Jessica and John. Well, it's official 2023, the warmest summer on record. We're going to take a look at how the heat is now impacting classes and students as the new academic year begins. Yes, it was super hot and not fair. For people to be in the sun while they're in school. So we all felt it, right? The summer, officially though, was the hottest on record for the planet. That is a new report from the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. It's not over yet. More heat on tap for today from Minnesota to Texas to New York. Record-setting heat has already busted through the old records. Now scorching temps are also upending the start of the new school year, forcing some schools to close down after just a few days of classes in several states. Gabe Cohen is live outside of a school in Washington, D.C. If it's hot here, I can imagine what it's like there. Yeah, Poppy, it's very hot, and it feels like these heat days are becoming the new snow days with thousands of schools now impacted by these extreme temperatures right at the start of the school year. And look, a big part of the problem is that a huge percentage of schools, especially in the northern U.S., just don't have air conditioning. And so some are telling students to head home early. Others saying it's really not safe to come in at all. As scorching heat bakes Baltimore, these kindergartners and first graders are heading home from school hours early. Because it's too hot. The rest of the students are staying home entirely, taking virtual classes all week because the school has no central air conditioning. Is it hot in there? Yes, it was super hot. Seven-year-old Delano and his mother Patricia are frustrated. It's not fair for people to be in the sun while they're in school. Do you worry about your son's safety when it's this hot out and there's no air conditioning in the yeah. school? Yeah, 
Yeah, I do, because he has asthma. 15 Baltimore schools are on similar heat schedules this week because they lack air conditioning. In some cases, delivering cooling units to classrooms. I can already feel this place heating up. Yes, imagine trying to learn in an environment where it's this warm. Andre Riley, a district spokesperson, took us inside these empty classrooms. It's better to shift them to an environment where we can have the focus again beyond teaching and learning as opposed to it's hot. This widespread heat wave is closing classrooms from Connecticut to Wisconsin. In Pittsburgh, dozens of schools are going virtual. In Philadelphia, 74 schools dismissed early on the first day. Near Detroit, an entire district shut down Tuesday because of the heat. Parents at this D.C. school are upset that kids are in class despite a broken cooling system. We know how hot it's going to be every summer, so the fact that they aren't really prepared for these kinds of incidents is a little ridiculous. A 2020 government report estimated 41% of public school districts need to update or replace HVAC systems in at least half their schools, 36,000 in all. Many of them spent COVID relief dollars on HVAC improvements, but districts not known for sweltering September temps are now struggling with what could be a new climate-fueled norm, with recent heat days in major districts like Kansas City, Denver, and Milwaukee. How big of a setback can this be for students to have several heat days in a row at the start of school? Definitely not preferable. You don't want to send students home early or transition them to a virtual environment for a long period of time. At a time when kids are still recovering from pandemic learning loss, many, like Delano, are headed right back home. What are we going to do? We can't just keep letting them go without the air. Now, Baltimore City Schools is one of the districts that's really invested in HVAC. A few years ago, they had 75 schools without air conditioning. That number is down to 10. But like many districts, they have found, Poppy Phil, that it is expensive and it is inefficient uh, putting those new systems into very, very old school buildings. And I should also mention, uh, it's not just classrooms that are being closed by this extreme heat. Uh, we're also seeing cancellations of extracurriculars, sports. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about the safety of students heading out to a football field when the temperature is this hot. Yeah, of course. Gabe, really important reporting. Thank you. Well, up next, the first behind-the-scenes account of the President Biden's first two years in the White House, including what's being said about an issue top of mind for voters, his age. Also, these stunning images out of Greece where torrential rain and floodwaters have destroyed homes and businesses turning some roads into rivers like you're looking at. One person has died. You can see the incalculable damage in the city of Volos. The city has sunk from the sheer enormous weight of that rain that has fallen. Greece's prime minister is calling it a totally extreme weather phenomenon. He's urging the public to follow instructions from authorities. I think there should be mental competency tests, and I don't care if they're for everybody 50 and older. We can't worry about Mitch McConnell being frozen at a podium. We can't have Joe Biden forget where he is. Our enemies are watching all of this. And every time they have an instance like that, America is less safe. That was Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley advocating again for mental competency tests for politicians over 75, saying that, quote, they need to be they need to let younger a younger generation take over that group over 75, of course, includes President Biden and the Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. 
A Wall Street Journal poll out this week found that voters overwhelmingly think Biden is too old to run for re-election. And a new book on Biden's presidency addresses questions about his age. Franklin Ford, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, writes, quote, It was striking that he took so few morning meetings or presided over public events before 10 a.m. His public persona reflected physical decline and times dulling of mental faculties that no pill or exercise regimen can resist. In private, he would occasionally admit to his friends that he felt tired. Now, this book is a behind-the-scenes account of Biden's first two years in office, and it draws on more than 300 interviews with Biden's inner circle, his cabinet, his oldest friends, and members of Congress. Franklin Ford joins us now. The book, of course, is called The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Thank you. Congratulations on the publication date. The 300 interviews was something uh, that has always stood out to me. This is a tough team to crack in terms of the senior. uh, They they don't talk out of turn. They don't like to talk a lot. Um, And your ability to get inside is very different. And it presents a very nuanced view as somebody who's fairly familiar with this, this current administration. That point, though, on the age, the, the paragraph I read is from the very end of your book. And what I find so striking and I think really gets at the crux of this is the very next paragraph down says, quote, but with Ukraine specific, obviously, we're talking about Secretary Blinken being there right now. The advantages of having an older president were on display. He wasn't just the leader of the coalition. He was the West's father figure whom foreign leaders could call for advice and look to for assurance. It was his calming presence and strategic clarity that helped lead the alliance uh, to such an aggressive stance which stymied authoritarianism on its front lines. He was a man for his age. Right. That dynamic of everything you laid out about his age and how he is physically, 100% accurate. Everything you laid out in the next paragraph is the view inside the White House and with with the current president of why he's done well in their minds in the first two years and why he can run for re-election. Yeah, it's so hard to have a nuanced conversation about the president's age because on the one hand, everybody can see the way that he walks. He, he, he's got a gait that suggests an elderly person. Sometimes I've seen him in the course of telling a story forget somebody's name, somebody who he knows decently well, or somebody, a senator who is in the headlines. But then I've also seen this other part of Joe Biden where he draws on his, his wisdom and his experience to give very commanding, very nuanced, very detailed uh, uh, analyses of legislative dynamics or grand strategy that would pass any test that Nikki Haley would be able to throw at him. And we need to be able to hold both of these thoughts in our head at the same time, which is a challenge for a lot of people. And it's a challenge I think the White House has compounded because um, there are these moments, Joe Biden goes out, he does a press conference and he'll say something that goes off script. Now, anybody who knows Joe Biden for an extended period of time knows that the essence of Joe Biden is that he's going to go off script at some point that right. he did that probably as a teenager too. Right. And so they, they tend to kind of keep him in his box and he, he focuses on the details of governing, which he also happens to really uh, get love. He's, he's, he, he adores that part of his job, but I think the public would benefit from having this view into the way that he thinks and talks about the world. The, the extent to which uh, the kind of the perception is perpetuated to some degree by how they operate around him. Uh, I, I think it is unquestioned. You do a lot uh, on the legislative successes, failures, uh, doldrums to some degree over a pretty <laughs> yeah. extended period of time, and then eventual uh, successes again in, in the middle of 2022. Um, it's striking to me 
You also talk about the first press conference after the midterms, which was kind of a big moment for Biden, for President Biden, where he could talk about, Can I, yeah. I told you so, I was right, you guys were all attacking me, I was right, we did better than you expected. And the most striking thing for me in that press conference is the first question he answered, he was asked what he would do differently in the next two years, and he said nothing, because people are just starting to find out what we did. Yeah. I think this gets at the issue of today, where White House officials say, look at the numbers, inflation is down, uh, jobs are still up, our uh, agenda is being implemented, and yet... Uh, I think the, the latest number was something uh, 63% of Americans in the latest CNN poll disapprove of the economy. That disconnect. Yeah. Well, inflation, I think, is a very specific type of economic pain. And embedded in a lot of the initial choices that the Biden administration made, they were willing to run the economy hot in order to keep people employed because one of Biden's fundamental precepts is that work is a source of dignity. So he'd rather have more people employed, maybe their paychecks wouldn't go quite as much, but there would be stability and dignity that would come with keeping people in jobs. But the problem that you're describing is that they have this raft of legislative accomplishments, whether it's you know, the, the infrastructure bill, it's the Inflation Reduction Act, which hastens the transition to the green economy in ways that have already exceeded our expectations, the CHIPS bill. All Embedded in all of this is a lot of the populism that Donald Trump promise, but never failed, has always failed to deliver, that he's uh, restoring American manufacturing, he's uh, doing industrial policy, he's being tough on China and building an economy that is built to withstand whatever happens in China. And yet he's not able to take credit for it. Maybe in this Labor Day speech that he gave, yeah. like there are the makings of that case where he's, one thing about Joe Biden that is interesting to me is he's not an adversarial guy. He doesn't like to go out there and go on the attack. And so it's striking when he starts to talk about Trump and the Park Avenue view. That becomes the frame, I think, that they could build a re-election. Yeah, definitely a contrast that they want. Uh, before we go, one of the things, uh, you have a, a great line in there uh, where it says, it's kind of a bigger picture line at the very start of the book where it says, in the story of Joe Biden, a pattern keeps reasserting itself that just after he's dismissed and passed his time, written off because of his doddering detachment from the zeitgeist, he pulls off his great, the greatest successes it, he shocks those who only think they know him. There's a chip on the shoulder of their team. Yeah. I mean, the president has a large chip on his shoulder yeah. as well. He's less subtle about it than maybe his <laughs> team is sometimes. The one thing based on the first two years, and I think their self-confidence about what they've done or their confidence, but is why, why run again? Why run for re-election? I'm not asking you if he, uh, he's in. That's no question about that. But did you get a sense of why he decided... I should go again, even at my age, even at kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I think he looks at the threat that Trump poses to the country and he says, I'm the safest bet in that battle against Trump, which is obviously an incredibly subjective uh, analysis. But it is grounded on the, the, the fact that he actually is the Democrat who beat Trump in 2020 and also if there was a primary and if you, you just don't know what happens when you open up the doors to an alternative. So, you know, I, I get why there are all these questions about it. I have a lot of those questions myself, but I can also see that there is, a, a, it's a line of thinking behind the decision to run again that's more than just a vanity decision. Right. Um, structurally, the book, I was wondering how you were going to attack two years uh, of a ton of stuff and the way it's structured, it's it's fast, it's, it's quick paced, but it's also incredibly deep and nuanced reporting. Um, the stuff about the Zelensky relationship, which I wanted to get to, but we're out of time, is also fascinating, particularly with Secretary Blinken in Kyiv right now. Uh, Frank Ford, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Franklin, big congrats. Phil left me a copy on my desk, so I'm going get, to get to it this weekend. All right, this is what's ahead. Two American men 
breaking barriers at this year's U.S. Open, but it's a 20-year-old who takes it to the next level with an upset win. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right, to sports this morning and a big upset last night at the U.S. Open. He's only 20 years old, but American Ben Shelton pulled off an incredible victory over Francis Tiafoe in the clutch to advance to the semifinals. It's also the first U.S. Open quarterfinal between two black American men. Our Jason Carroll has more on the game. And Shelton, who is now the youngest American man to reach the semifinals since 1992. Center court at the U.S. Open blistering, and we're not just talking about the heat. Five American players blazed a trail at the Open in New York, Coco Goff, Madison Keys, Francis Tiafoe, Taylor Fritz, and Ben Shelton, all crushing their way into the quarterfinals. Hometown heroes, hometown heroes. Let's go, USA. I've definitely watched more of the U.S. Open this year than the last few years because I saw all the American flags on the board. It's the first time three American men have made it this far since 2005, and no American male player has lifted the trophy since Andy Roddick won the title in 2003. I think the USA has had a great tournament, and it's going to continue right through Fritz. Fritz fans will have to wait for their big win. Number two seed Novak Djokovic beat him in straight sets Tuesday. But fans say there's still plenty to celebrate after Shelton advanced to the semis after his win against fellow American Tiafo. I'm a huge Tiafo fan. I, love I hope you know. Too. I mean, I love. I, I also love Ben Shelton. He brings so much energy, so much pop to the court. Coco Goff. Also advancing to the semis, 19-year-old Coco Goff. She's the first American teenager to reach the semifinals since Serena Williams in 2001. Wait, wait, when you were younger, how old are you now? Nine. Nine, okay, but go ahead, go ahead. When I was younger, I would always look up to her and I would always watch her on the TV. I think she's inspiring to the young generation. I watch Serena, so that's my generation. They are watching Coco. Tennis fans say much of the excitement surrounding American players today is thanks to what Serena and her sister Venus Williams have done for the sport for more than two decades. I think they also encourage a whole generation of youth to start playing the game more and that it's not just women but also men. Not lost on fans at Arthur Ashe Stadium, named for the only black man to win singles titles at the U.S. Open, Wimbledon and the Australian Open are the number of players of color advancing at this years open. I think the sport's opened up to more people and I think the USTA has made a concerted effort to expand um, the presence of tennis without amongst different different communities and I think it's working. It's clearly working for this nine-year-old player. Do you hope to be what someday like those you see up here? 
Yeah, my dad always says that when we were up there and everybody was cheering for Coco, he said that one day that's going to be me. Jason Carroll, CNN, New York. Love that piece. CNN This Morning continues right now. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Kyiv right now meeting with Ukrainian officials. This is going to be very much about taking a fresh message back to Washington, but also to the United Nations as they seek to hold support together for this war now in its 19th month. Special Counsel Jack Smith is accusing the former president of making daily statements that could prejudice future jurors in the January 6th case. You'll have the opportunity to watch the judge weigh in on scheduling and whether this case should be broken up into smaller cases. And you have Mark Meadows trying to get over into federal court. Fonnie Willis took a big bite here, and now she's got to deal with it. The longest sentence yet for a January 6th insurrectionist, 22 years. That is how long the former Proud Boys leader will be in prison. It is not the first time that we have heard defendants suggest that Trump is behind what they did that day. Enrique Tarrio wasn't even here that day. The importance of the sentence was one of deterrence. The community is on high alert as the search expands now for that escape murderer in Pennsylvania. This is a dangerous game of tactical hide and seek. The moment of like, oh my God, this guy is down there. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to talk to his caucus behind closed doors about his health. What you're seeing there is something very specific. I'm not sure we still have an answer as to what caused that. Who is ready to replace him and step in? Can he do it? I mean, it's like being a quarterback. I hope he can. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you are with us this morning. D.C. is back, as you know well, fully. The Senate is back. Uh, the fall has started. The school year has started. But we're also keeping an eye on the international news yeah. because the Secretary of State has made a surprise visit into Kyiv. We are going to keep you updated on that as the morning continues. But we want to start with a new development this morning in the federal election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Special Counsel Jack Smith says Trump's, quote, daily extrajudicial statements are threatening to taint the jury pool. This allegation is part of a court fight that remains largely under seal, meaning the public doesn't get to see it, that the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, has been sparring with Trump's team to get on the public docket, the judge ordering both sides to submit their arguments next week. What is this all about? Ellie Honig at the table with us this morning. Good morning, Ellie. Let's begin here. I think your take on this is that prosecutors need to tread carefully here. Yeah. Why? So there's competing interests. On the one hand, any defendant does have the right to criticize his prosecutors. I've been criticized. His prosecution. Even the judge. You do have broad First Amendment rights to stand up for yourself. You don't have to be demure and sort of mind your manners if you've been charged as a defendant. On the other hand, there is a line that can be crossed. The most serious line is when you get into the realm of potentially intimidating uh, witnesses or victims, right? There's a specific bail term in Trump's case that he can't do that. There's another line when you potentially start to say things that are so inflammatory that you might infect your jury pool. Because let's remember, jurors are just regular civilians pulled from the population. It looks like DOJ is trying to find a way to do something to rein Trump in without infringing on his First Amendment rights. The question I had, and you can tell me if this makes no sense whatsoever, yeah. but <laughs> is this because they feel like they have to in this moment or because they actually want something done? Uh, it's, not a, it's a good question. Um, I think they feel like they're, they can't do nothing. It's really hard to sit there and watch, as they say, daily, so a lot of times, four or five times a day, these statements made that, let's be candid, in an ordinary case, some of these statements would absolutely cause prosecutors to go to a judge and say, 
we need to either up the bail conditions or in some cases lock this person up. I do not believe that's going to happen here. I think any notion of Trump being locked up on a bail violation is really just a fantasy. Perhaps, and to be clear, a normal person might be, but this is not a normal person. It's a person running for the presidency. We already know that Trump's legal team wants this case out of D.C. They had suggested yeah. places like West Virginia. Doesn't Jack Smith have to be careful here yes. that, that he could later argue, look, you've made this jury pool unfair by doing this, so now you really have to move it? Exactly. If prosecutors are going to argue to a judge, hey, he's tainting the jury pool, Trump's team is going to respond, that's why we have what we call voir dire. That's why we have jury selection, because it will weed out people who are unduly prejudiced either way. Well, let's fast forward, hypothetically, a couple weeks. Donald Trump's going to say, I need to get out of D.C. because you know what? 95% of people in Washington, D.C. voted against me. This jury pool And now you didn't me. let me say what I, my exactly. to those people. Exactly. And Trump's going to say, this jury pool hates me. And you know what Jack Smith's going to want to say? Well, that's why we have voir dire. That's why we have jury selection, because we weed out people who are unduly mm -hmm. influenced. So uh, to me, that's a much bigger fight about where the case goes. So I'd be very careful if I was Jack Smith about arguing he's hopelessly prejudicing the jury pool, because Jack Smith's going to want to make that argument at some point down the line. Uh, jury selection's going to be fascinating. Like, there, I, don't, I don't know anybody who doesn't have an opinion on the former president. I don't know anybody who doesn't know who he is at listen, this I, point I picked a jury pool for John Gotti here in New York City, John yeah. Gotti Jr. Wow. And we thought that was hard. <laughs> I mean, picking, picking one for Donald Trump is going to be... Everyone has heard of him, everyone has opinions, but, but our system can do it. Yeah, that's why it exists. All right, Ali Honig, thanks so thanks. much. This morning, Proud Boys leader Enrico Tario has received the longest prison sentence so far of any of the January 6th defendants. The judge sentenced him to 22 years behind bars and called him the ultimate organizer of the insurrection. Tario was not actually at the Capitol the day of the attack. He was banned from entering Washington. Sarah Murray joins us now with more so significant here, what was handed down and how the judge explained why. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the judge handing down the longest sentence we have seen for any defendant related to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, clearly trying to send a message about the importance of the peaceful transfer of power in this country and send a strong signal that this is a deterrent for anyone who may think about doing something like this in the future. More than two decades behind bars for the man U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly called the ultimate leader behind the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In Tuesday's hearing, Kelly said former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Torrio was motivated by revolutionary zeal. What happened that day did not honor the founders. It was the kind of thing they wrote the Constitution to prevent, the judge said. Before being sentenced for seditious conspiracy and other charges, Tario apologized for the, quote, pain and suffering that was caused. Quote, I am not a political zealot. Inflicting harm or changing the outcome of the election was not my goal. Tario also adding, I held myself morally above others, and this trial has shown me how wrong I was. Tario was not in D.C. on January 6th, having been arrested days before and ordered by a judge to leave the city for burning a D.C. church's Black Lives Matter banner and bringing high-capacity rifle magazines into the district the previous month. But the judge said even though Tario wasn't there, the Proud Boys leader, quote, had an outsized impact on the events of the day. During the months-long trial, prosecutors showed evidence that Tario was readying for a revolution and helped create a command structure within the Proud Boys in the run-up to the insurrection. Make no mistake, Tario told other Proud Boys on January 6th, we did this. 
During Tuesday's sentencing hearing, the prosecutor called Tario the leader of this conspiracy that targeted our entire system of government. Tario's attorney promising an appeal. Uh, we respectfully disagree. Vote. Yeah, we respect it. Uh, there'll be a day and a time where an appeal will come, and we expect the appeal to come soon. Now, Tario's attorney also said the sentence caught them off guard. Even though Tario now faces the longest sentence of any of these defendants we've seen, it's still well below what prosecutors asked for. They had asked the judge to put Tario behind bars for 33 years. Poppy. Sarah Murray, thank you very much. Well, right now, we're going to show you live pictures in Kyiv, Ukraine, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken is there. It was a surprise visit to the country. He's set to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, at any moment now. Now, this trip comes at a critical moment in the war. Ukraine's counteroffensive is struggling to break through, and President Biden pushing for more funding. The American people less than convinced at this point. Moments ago, the Kremlin weighed in on this visit. Vladimir Putin's spokesman told reporters that Blinken's visit will not change the course of the war and that the U.S. is intent on keeping the war going, quote, until the last Ukrainian, as we continue to watch those live pictures and look at these images. Our national uh, security correspondent, Kylie Atwood, joins us from the State Department. It's a surprise trip, his third, um, Secretary Blinken's third since the war um, broke out in a critical phase, right? Yeah, a really critical phase. I mean, the war has been grinding on now, as you guys know, for, for more than a year, heading into a year and a half now. And the Secretary of State already making remarks this morning talking about continuing the U.S. commitment to the war in Ukraine. It's a really pivotal moment, a strategic moment for the secretary to be on the ground in Ukraine for a number of reasons. You know, Americans are headed back to school, headed back to work after the summer, getting caught up, caught up on the news. Having the secretary of state in Ukraine sends a very clear signal that the Biden administration is still prioritizing this war. It's also at a moment when there's going to be this funding fight again in Congress with the president uh, putting forth $24 billion in proposed new funding for this war to Congress. And there has been some criticism continued in Congress about new funding. And it also comes as the UN General Assembly is later this month in New York. And as you guys know, that's when world leaders from around the world are going to convene. And according to a senior State Department official, this is an opportunity for the Secretary of State to meet with the Ukrainians ahead of that pivotal meeting in New York and to really align as to what their message is going to be. Now, when it comes to the counteroffensive, obviously that has been a grinding, really troublesome, also with moments of breakthrough for the Ukrainians in recent weeks, you know, in the South and the East. But the Secretary of State, according to a senior State Department official, wants to be on the ground there to assess what the Ukrainians are actually seeing, what they are hearing, what their plans are in the coming weeks and months on the counteroffensive. And we should also note that he's expected to announce uh, about $1 billion in new U.S. support for Ukraine, humanitarian support, economic support, uh, military support. So all of these things, while he is on the ground there, he will be meeting with President Zelensky, as you guys said, that should be coming up soon. He'll also be headed uh, to lay wreaths at a, at a cemetery for fallen Ukrainian soldiers. And so there's a number of things that he's going to be doing there, meeting with U.S. diplomats who have been on the ground and really learning what those on the ground are seeing and what the future of this war could look like. All right, Kylie Atwood for us at the State Department. We're going to be keeping an eye on those pictures you've been looking at in Kyiv, that meeting expected between Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, and Volodymyr Zelensky. You're looking at uh, top 
State Department officials right now, including I think Matt Miller is who I saw there. You also saw Oksana Makarova, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., who is back in Kyiv for this meeting. Yeah, we'll keep a close eye on that. Also, the first televised hearing of former President Trump will take place today. It's going to happen in Georgia. We'll explain why and what you can expect ahead. Plus, Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville could jeopardize the confirmation of the nation's highest ranking military officer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Why? That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, we're still keeping an eye in Kyiv, on Kyiv, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken has made a surprise visit. He will be meeting shortly with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Also happening today, back in the U.S., the first televised hearing in the case against Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants. This is in the Georgia state election subversion case. Significant. It's the first televised proceeding for any of Trump's criminal cases, and it has to do with the critical issue of that busy calendar you see on your screen. The DA, Fonnie Willis, pushing for all defendants to begin facing trial on October 23rd. Former President Trump is opposing that speedy timeline. Many of the defendants want to break up the case. With us at the table, Jennifer Rogers, Ellie Honig, John Avalon, along with political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. Good morning to you Thanks. all. Jennifer, it's on TV. Does this mean everything's going to be on TV in this case? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Right. I mean, there's some things, of course, that are done at sidebar, maybe yeah. even in chambers if it has to be secret. But everything that is public that would happen in the courtroom in full view of people who could walk in off the street will be televised, which is terrific for all of us. Right. We can see the wheels of justice turning. So what do we see today then? Well, the judge has to get everybody together and set some dates, right? We have 19 defendants. Two of them are going to go early. The other 17 won't be forced to do that. So he's got to impose some order on the schedule. So I think prosecutors are going to want, let's put these two defendants who are going early in October where they're going. I think she's going to ask for one trial date for the remaining 17 and then start to thin that herd, right? Some of the low frame, the hanging fruit will plead out. Some cooperators will plead out and they're going to want to end up with about six to eight defendants for trial. Uh, I, I want to ping pong back and forth between the legal and the political because they are so intertwined in this moment, as we've all discussed. Errol, we had the new CNN poll that shows 68% of Republicans and Republican-leaning voters do not think that the charges against Trump, even if they are true, uh, are relevant to his fitness uh, to be president, which he is currently the leading uh, Republican contender. By just a few by, points. By like one to 60 points <laughs> at this point. Especially when you line it up with that it's going to be on TV. People are going to be watching. What's your read on that? I think you'll see, first of all, you'll start to see some of those numbers change. Uh, really? Because, well, I, look, in the, we, we saw this with the January 6th committee hearings. You start watching it. You start going through the evidence that's allowed or not allowed. And there's ongoing discussion and there's conversation on, on national news about what has been happening piece by piece. I think people will start to be a little bit more informed about it. And that ultimately will flow through to the polls and people's uh, political decision making. But at the same time, you, what you're going to see is uh, a number of people who have decided, um, I want to be with Donald Trump. I don't really care about these legal charges. However, that same poll, the, the latest CNN poll, shows that they think it's very serious if he, say, gets convicted. Will he be able to actually serve? And then, then it starts to really start to matter. So that you can believe that he's innocent. You can believe that the charges are BS. You can decide that you're going to support him, say, in the primary. But if he actually, you know, gets sort of starts going down the road toward conviction, I think people start to think about it very differently. There's an yeah. interesting sort of legal and, and political overlap here, which is let's say we have two sets of trials. As Jen said, I think that's virtually certain. We're going to have the early trial, the later trial. 
legally, tactically, big advantage for Trump. You want to go second. You want to see all the evidence come out early. You can scout it. You can see what worked, what didn't. On the other hand, if there is a televised trial of Cheesebro and or Sidney Powell, Donald Trump will be what, what Jen and I used to call collateral damage, meaning he's going to be taking shots from those witnesses that may resonate over TV. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. It, this poll is fascinating, but one of the things it reinforces is that you've got you know 37 to 42 percent of, of Republicans who are hardcore Donald Trump supporters, no matter what. That's still a lot of folks <laughs> room to erode, right? You've got around 20 percent who aren't going to support him no matter what, and then you got folks who are persuadable, and 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 it shows that there is a, an emerging top tier in the Republican candidates, people that they're willing to can be considered, including Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. Ramaswamy, and uh, and and uh, DeSantis, although he's slightly on the decline. The other thing that's striking is that Trump's support is under the rubric of I support his policies, which is something we've heard a lot, and and I do think as that starts to collide with basic values, what are his policies on democracy, peaceful transfer of power, uh, you know that 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 could uh, have a further negative effect. So I'm with Errol on that. It's always good to be with Errol on things. <laughs> you know, occasionally. John, I want to switch topics here. Enrico Tario, leader of the Proud yes. Boys, sentenced to 22 years. Um, notably, Jack Smith did not charge former President Trump with seditious conspiracy. The judge yesterday in the sentencing of Tario said you were the ultimate leader. You have some thoughts on this. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think Enrico Tario is the ultimate leader. He was a leader, a leader of one of the self-styled militia groups, the Proud Boys. The fact that uh, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and Enrico Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, have both been convicted of susp- seditious conspiracy is incredibly significant historically. That is a very tough charge to prove. Um, but the ultimate leader, according to the people who were told, you know, stand back and stand by, the people they thought they were doing this for, uh, in the expectation of the case of the Oath Keepers that the Insurrection Act would be invoked, was Donald Trump. Uh, and I think the judge had a lot of clarity in his, his comments around, around the sentencing yesterday, which was very tough. But the ultimate leader was not Enrique. Nobody was storming the Capitol for Enrique Tarrio. I was just looking, glancing back. We have your book, Lincoln, The Fight for Peace. <laughs> yeah. Just thinking about a Republican president in that moment, in this country at that time, and just the juxtaposition to today. Striking. Can I follow that yeah. further, Ali? The decision by Jack Smith, People refer to this as the January 6th trial to some degree, or the mm-hmm. second key, key indictment that he's brought. It's not. Right. It's about everything around it leading up to right. it and after it. Um, but to Avon's point, why not? So I think one of the great misconceptions about this case writ large is that it was all one nice, neatly organized coordinated conspiracy. And I think this was the error in Merrick Garland's initial approach when he, what did he always used to say? We're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. That was never going to work because what we have here is multiple conspiracies separate from one another, but with a similar goal. In other words, Enrique Tario never conspired with Donald Trump. They never met. They never spoke. They never had any even indirect connection. Donald Trump was running his own conspiracy to try to steal this election, most of which happened before the actual date of January 6th. Then you have these other people clearly acting on his behalf at his urging. He lit the spark, who went in and stormed the Capitol. And that was sort of the way I viewed it from the start. I will say the way that it's been charged has, has played that out. And so when this judge says Enrique Tario was the ultimate leader or whatever he says, I think that means of the oath keepers, of the people who physically stormed the Capitol. But Trump still absolutely was, was the spiritual leader. <laughs> stand back and stand by. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Circling back to what your point that you think there will be uh, defendants, co-defendants of Trump's that plead out 
and that you'll end up with six or eight defendants, not 19, which makes this a slightly more simple case to try um, when you're looking at the RICO charges. Michael Cohen, the former president, mm-hmm. one of his lawyers and fixer, said something interesting on CNN last night. Here he was. My recommendation for them would be speak now, because as soon as the guy next to you or the woman next to you starts speaking and spilling the beans, your information is not as um, important. It's not as significant. So the person really who starts to speak first is the one that will get the benefit. So that's true here, like it's always true, but not as much because, first of all, we were talking about this earlier, there's not a lot of cooperation that they need here or that they're going to get, to be honest. Some of these lower level people might want to cooperate, and I think they will use a couple of them, but it's not like they're going to have, I was in the room with Donald Trump when we talked about, we lost this election, how are we going to steal it? That's not the kind of evidence you're going to find anyway. I do think they want to get people out of this case for the logistical reasons that we discussed. You can't do all of these trials, so they'll thin that herd. They'll get a couple cooperators. And then I think they're just going to plead a lot of people out cheap, as we would say, to like a lesser offense yeah, than the RICO. There are some cases you charge. Jen used to approve my indictments where you would go, boy, we're, we're going to need that little tidbit. Where you go, boy, we, we better hope one of these guys flips or else we're going to have a little shaky case. I, I agree with you. I don't think that's a case here. Yeah. I think I think cooperation will be lovely, but I don't think they need it. It's not like you're getting cooperatives with John Gotti's case. Uh, we had a few. Yeah. Yeah. There were t- tougher guys than this. Yeah. Um, that sounds interesting. More interested in Jen's actual critique of your work. She's a good chief. She's a good chief. Thank you very much. As always, we will be carrying that televised hearing from Fulton County live here on CNN starting at 1 p.m. Now, it's been nearly a week since convicted murderer uh, made his escape from the Pennsylvania prison. Ahead, we're learning new details about the strategy law enforcement are using to try and find him. Also, the disgraced South Carolina lawyer convicted of murdering his wife and his son. Now his defense says they have new evidence and they want a new trial. This is a dangerous game of tactical hide and seek. This is a dangerous, dangerous man. He's got nothing to lose, but I can tell you this, his desperateness will not outlast the resolve of our law enforcement officers here. You were just listening to Supervisory Deputy for the U.S. Marshals Service highlighting how dangerous and difficult the search for an escaped murderer in eastern Pennsylvania has become. He added that the goal right now is to, quote, stress him out of hiding. Now, two school districts are still closed today, and about 200 law enforcement officers are assisting in the search. The manhunt, remember, it's entering its seventh day. CNN's Danny Freeman is outside the prison where the convicted killer made his escape. Danny, you've been covering this throughout the course of the last week. Some developments yesterday. What's your sense of where things stand this morning? Well, Phil, frankly, we're still trying to read some of the tea leaves in this early hour of the morning to see where police are devoting most of their attention as this manhunt continues into its seventh day. We have reason to believe this manhunt may be expanding, but I'll get to that in a moment. I just want to go back for a second and explain to viewers how we got to this point. Remember yesterday, police told us that after they had already established really a two-mile radius just south of the prison, it turns out that Cavalcante was able to uh, slip that perimeter, and he was 
caught on trail cameras in Longwood Gardens. It's a popular, sprawling, large tourist attraction, Botanical Gardens, uh, a little bit further south of not just the prison, but also that two-mile radius. And the picture was very eerie, Phil. We saw it yesterday. He was pictured shirtless. He had a duffel bag. He had a backpack. Police believe that means that he's been really scavenging and trying to perhaps burglarize homes or gather supplies from, say, cars in order to extend uh, him being on the run. Uh, but then the perimeter extended south. Well, I want to describe what we've been seeing this morning, Phil. Uh, at this same time yesterday, we drove around Longwood Gardens, that area, and I'll tell you, there was a Pennsylvania State Police trooper on basically every corner. Uh, their lights were on, there were troopers standing outside with long guns. Today, we drove around that same area, and there weren't almost any uh, troopers in that specific area. Instead, we've seen troopers move east towards Chad's Ford, searching the area uh, along Baltimore Pike, Route 1, and Brandywine Creek. We still haven't had an official confirmation that that man hunt has expanded, but that's what we're seeing this morning. And of course, Phil, all of this is extremely stressful for neighbors as we enter day seven. Take a listen to what one had to say just yesterday. Everyone in this area just hasn't slept. I can't even imagine the people in Water Glen and what they went through now that he's gotten out. Now it's just now we get a little bit more sense of how they were feeling for the last three days. It's just tiring, it's exhausting, and just your nerves are on edge and you just second guess everything. Nerves are on edge, tiring, exhausting. And listen, police are still asking, though, these residents uh, who have been asked of so much so far during this manhunt to stay vigilant, to make sure you're locking your doors when you can, because, again, this man, this dangerous man is still on the loose seven days after escaping from the prison behind me. Phil? Yeah. A week in. Danny Freeman, great reporting as always. Thank you. All right, to South Carolina now, where there is a new push for a new trial for Alec Murdoch. He is a disgraced attorney convicted of killing his wife and son. His attorneys have now filed a motion with the Court of Appeals alleging jury tampering by a clerk of court. Randy Kay following all of this, just as she followed the whole trial, walk us through these new defenses. Good morning, Poppy and Phil. Well, the defense is arguing that jury tampering denied their client, Alec Murdoch, a fair trial. And as you said, at the center of it all is this court clerk, Becky Hill. And here are some of the allegations that the defense is alleging. They say that uh, she instructed jurors not to be fooled by Murdoch's testimony. Also, that she allegedly had frequent conversations, private conversations with the jury foreperson in the bathroom in the jury room, uh, that she asked jurors their opinions about their guilt, the guilt or innocence of Alec Murdoch. And also that she uh, she came up with this fake uh, Facebook post in order to get a juror removed who she believed was going to vote not guilty. And sure enough, that juror was removed on the last day of the trial. The defense is also alleging that she pressured the jurors to come up with a quick verdict, telling them they were going to have to stay in a hotel and they wouldn't be able to take smoking breaks. Six of those jurors were smokers. Now, the defense did hold a brief press conference yesterday. And here's how they explained Alec Murdoch's reaction to these allegations. When I shared with him the affidavits, he's a lawyer, he was astonished, he was shaking, he, he was in disbelief. So the question, of course, Poppy, is why would a court clerk allegedly do this? Well, the defense is saying that she did it all to get a book sold, that she wrote this book about the trial. She was trying to profit from it. And if there was a not guilty verdict, she likely would not have been able to secure a book deal. And Poppy, we have reached out to Becky Hill. Mm -hmm. No response yet. And Randy, what sort of proof does the defense say they have here? 
The defense is saying that they have at least three sworn uh, affidavits, one from a juror, one from a juror who was dismissed. And they're also, Poppy, using excerpts from Becky Hill's own book, which was published this summer as evidence against her. What does the attorney general have to say about it? Well, the attorney general in South Carolina has 10 days to file a reply with the Court of Appeals, but we did reach out to his office and we got a statement uh, from Attorney General Alan Wilson saying that we are currently reviewing the defense's latest motion and we will, we will respond through the legal process at the appropriate time. And, Poppy, we also reached out to SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, right. who was critical in uh, gathering evidence against Alec Murdoch, as you recall, and they said they did not have any response at this time. But it is worth noting just very quickly that even if he does get a new trial in this conviction, is overturned. He is facing dozens of charges related to financial crimes, many of which he admitted to when he was on the stand uh, testifying in his own defense. So he likely will still spend the rest of his life behind bars, Bobby. That's an important point. Randy Kay, thank you for all that reporting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a surprise trip to Ukraine to show support for its ongoing war with Russia. Still waiting meetings right now between Blinken and top Ukrainian officials, but it comes as new polls show American public support for more U.S. aid in Ukraine is waning to some degree. Coming up, we're going to ask Senator Chris Murphy about how Congress can continue to authorize more funding despite shrinking support. Stay with us. We're continuing to follow the breaking news this morning. You see Secretary Anthony Blinken just moments ago taking a seat at his surprise visit to Kyiv. He's set to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, also meeting with top Ukrainian officials. And it comes at a critical moment in the war during Ukraine's grinding counteroffensive. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He serves and is a critical voice for Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, I appreciate your time. The timing here uh, of the visit, Blinken has gone, I think, two or three times up to this point. But it seems notable given the fact that there is an administration request to Congress for more funding. Uh, the counteroffensive is grinding on. Do you think that's the intent here, to send a message uh, both publicly at home and internationally? Well, listen, I think it's really important for Secretary Blinken to be directly engaged with his colleagues in Ukraine. So these visits are often intelligence gathering efforts. But no doubt this is part of the administration's attempt to convince Republicans not to abandon Ukraine at a moment where I would argue this offensive is no longer grinding on, but actually breaking through. Reports in the last four days suggest that for the really first time since the offensive began, the Ukrainians are making some significant progress. And uh, this would be the worst possible time for Congress to get involved in a debate as to whether or not we are going to stick with the Ukrainian people. Um, Ukraine has a lot of needs. Uh, first and foremost, they need continued military aid. We have this global artillery shortage, and we've got to be creative to get them more help. But I think Secretary Blinken is going to be announcing today, in part, economic and humanitarian assistance, uh, because we still need to help the Ukrainian people survive, the government stay afloat, uh, our aid needs to be nimble in order to help them win this war. So uh, no doubt part of this trip is going to be an attempt to explain why this aid is so important and why we can't um, really leave any doubt in the Ukrainians' mind or in the Russians' mind as to whether we're committed here. I think it was really notable to hear uh, your, your Senate colleague on the other side of the aisle, Lindsey Graham, um, who just went to Ukraine, by the way, in August 
say, if you think he's been critical of the Afghanistan withdrawal, as you know, if you think getting out of Afghanistan was a mistake, you're right. Pulling the plug on Ukraine and allowing Putin to get away with this is Afghanistan on steroids. I think he's talking to Republicans um, and Republicans in the House specifically and the American public who a majority of them no longer favor more aid to Ukraine. Do you think Lindsey Graham is right? Well, I think there's a pretty significant difference between our interests in Afghanistan and our interests in Ukraine. But I do agree with Lindsay mm -hmm. that the United States has a direct U.S. national security interest in making sure that Russia doesn't move on Kyiv. And let's just be honest, um, if the United States was to pull out, uh, Russia would have the ability to conquer all of Ukraine. And the message that that would send um, across the world, but in particular to China, is absolutely devastating. The United mm -hmm. States has benefited from the sort of broad post-World War II order where big countries don't invade small countries. The lid would be off that order if we abandoned Ukraine. And there's a direct U.S. national security interest mm -hmm. in uh, keeping countries in their box. Senator, you talk about the funding and the support. My question, particularly as the war enters this phase or has been in this phase and how long it has gone, if support is a concern, if the need to keep the Western coalition together has been critical from day one, why not give them everything they ask for now? Why not try it? Clearly, every red line that I think this administration was concerned about related to Russia and what it may trigger, they have crossed over time and have not uh, suffered consequences that they were concerned about. Why not give them everything immediately? Well, I think this administration has given Ukraine everything that they need. Uh, and, um, of course, we're transferring weapon systems to them um, on a schedule that allows them to use those weapon systems. Many of these systems are really complicated, and it would frankly just be irresponsible for us to hand those systems to the Ukrainians without proper training or security procedures, right? We want to make sure that they know how to use these weapon systems and that they don't fall into the wrong hands. And so we've got to do this on the right schedule. But um, I think the Biden administration, you know, has taken some real risks in transferring to the Ukrainians some really serious systems, systems that potentially can be used in offensive operations inside Russia, um, systems that potentially risk escalating the war. But um, Biden wants Ukraine to win. And I think that that's been his North Star from the beginning. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, Poppy picked up on this uh, in your interview yesterday where you, you defended Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, in terms of uh, your kind of sense of where he's at right now. It reflected what I'd heard from Republican senators and staff behind the scenes. We haven't seen a lot of it publicly. He spoke yesterday. Um, what, what, can you just kind of walk through the decision to do that? Because a Democrat defending Senate Minority Leader McConnell, not always the case to some degree. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, there's no secret that I disagree with Mitch McConnell's priorities. I think he's um, been you know, bad for this country. Um, but at the same time, what I see is someone who's had a couple isolated incidences. Um, what I've seen is someone who generally is pretty in control of his caucus. Obviously, I worked very closely with him just a year ago uh, on passing the first major anti-gun violence measure through uh, the Senate, a measure that he ended up 
supporting. Uh, and so, well, it's, you know, in the end, up to the Republicans as to whether they want Mitch McConnell leading them or someone else. Um, this does seem to be likely a result uh, of the concussion and with the exception of those, you know, kind of embarrassing moments that he has endured. He seems very much the old Mitch McConnell that a lot of us are, are, are used to and used to battling. Before you go, I'm really interested in something you tweeted about uh, what was the most popular song in America, you know, just a few weeks ago, Oliver Anthony's Rich Men of Richmond. Here's a little bit of it to remind people. These rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they all just want to have total control. We, we know Fox News opened their first Republican debate with that and asked the candidates what they thought it meant. And, and you tweeted, progressives should listen to this because it shows a path of realignment. What do you mean? Yeah, I, I don't agree with everything in that song. Uh, the singer seems to blame his problems on food stamps and taxes, which I think is, you know, just repeating right wing conservative tropes. But what he's also singing about is, um, you know, how miserable work has become, how terrible wages are, how soulless existence feels for a lot of Americans. And I just, you know, think that there is a real potential for progressives who actually actually have the answers for people who are crushed by low wage work to reach out to folks like that and invite them to be part of our coalition. I, I saw a lot of you know my friends on the left just simply ridicule that song. And mm -hmm. listen, there's a lot to ridicule in that song, um, but we'd be better off inviting people who respond to that song, especially the parts of that song that complain uh, about how difficult it is to be a working person in America mm -hmm. today and explain to them it's the Democratic Party that is going to uh, control the excesses of corporations. It's the progressive movement that has been fighting for higher minimum wages. Uh, I just think that's a conversation we should be engaged in instead of seeing that song as an opportunity to just make fun of somebody mm -hmm. or a group of people. Yeah, it really uh, certainly got me and I think a lot of us thinking. Senator, we appreciate your time on all of these topics this morning. Thank you. Thank you. A government watchdog predicts a number that is not a welcome one, a federal budget deficit that will balloon to $2 trillion this year. A Harvard economist, former economic advisor to President Obama, says that is extraordinarily confusing given this economy right now. We'll talk to Jason Furman about it coming up. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this is a pretty startling number. The federal budget deficit is set to nearly double this year. This is a new projection from a government watchdog. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Government says it's going to balloon to $2 trillion for the fiscal year ending September 30th. A big imbalance like this can contribute to higher interest rates for you. It can impact spending priorities for the government. The timing is really weird and confusing, though. Here's why. Deficits typically shrink with the kind of economic growth and historically low unemployment that we've seen recently, right? This means more taxes coming in and there's less government spending on unemployment. Well, the sort of increase we're seeing now only really happens during wartime, a deep recession or the COVID pandemic, for example. You can see on this chart that in 2022, the deficit dropped by the greatest amount ever. That was in large part due to a stronger economy and no new emergency spending on COVID. But now it's shooting back up. Jason Furman, a top economic advisor to President Obama, calls it, quote, some weird freakish thing. 
That's the technical economic term, I suppose. And he joins me now. Jason, I was struck by your comments in the Washington Post. Wanted to have you on. So thanks very much for, for joining us. Why is this happening? You know, they don't actually fully know. But part of it was there were a lot of capital gains taxes collected last year. Then the stock market fell, and so there weren't nearly as many capital gains this year. But that's only a small part of what's going on. It'll actually take a while before the government collects all the data. But most of this is happening um, in tax collections being down. Is this, quote, weird, freakish thing going on going to be bad for Americans at home soon? Look, I think in your intro, you got it exactly right. Um, high deficits do put upward pressure on interest rates. They do raise the cost of mortgages for families. They can affect the ability of businesses um, to invest. And this is now a problem that I used to think that maybe we could sort of skirt our way through, making some mm -hmm. nips and tucks around the edges. But with interest rates so high, that makes it even harder for the government to deal with its budget. So what can we do about it? I mean, look, there's two answers here. Um, you can raise taxes, you can cut spending, and the truth is the government's going to have to do a certain amount of both. Um, tax cuts for high-income families have been one of the contributors, one of the reasons we have this large deficit. And so we need to reverse those and certainly need to make sure that when all the tax cuts expire in 2025, um, that we're not continuing them. Um, but then I think we can also look at some, um, you know, smart, well-designed spending reforms. Uh, the White House was asked about this uh, in Corinne Jean-Pierre's press briefing yesterday. Here's how she answered. Uh, deficits from year to year can be volatile. Uh, and so that's kind of how uh, we have tracked that, but the reality is the president has a real plan, as we've laid out multiple times, to reduce the deficit, and we don't see Republicans having a real plan. And she says that includes legislation the president signed that will cut the deficit by a trillion dollars. The plan as you know it, in your view, is it going to work, what they're laying out? Look, if you pass the president's entire budget, you would both make progress on this problem and you do a number of other good things um, for our society. I think that budget was formed at a time when we didn't appreciate just how large the deficit was, just mm -hmm. how high interest rates had risen. So you'd probably need to do more um, than what they put down, but it would be a start. Um, and I agree with her. Absolutely. Look at what the Republican House recently passed. They passed even more tax cuts that would make this problem mm -hmm. um, even worse. Jason, let me end on this, and it's not a direct analogy, but hear me out and I wonder your thoughts. I was thinking a bit this morning about why there's this big disconnect between what the Biden administration notes are facts on the economy being pretty good and how people at home feel, not just Republicans, but Democrats, about their economic situation and what it costs them to live and provide for their family. I thought back to John McCain in 2008 and the fundamentals of the economy are strong. And it was very different. And that was a different time. And the fundamentals were not strong. But does the Biden administration risk a moment like that if they keep messaging Bidenomics this way without conceding we get your pain on groceries, on mortgages, on rent? Look, I'm not a message expert, but just the facts. Households got into a deep hole because of COVID, because of all the inflation that emerged. They're digging out of that hole now. They are making progress in terms of wages outstripping inflation, but they're not all the way out of the hole yet. 
Um, and that's the situation that we're in now, progress, but not all the way there. Um, how exactly you message that, um, I'll leave that to others. Jason Furman, thank you very much for always giving us the facts. We appreciate it. Well, a new report out this morning confirms what we have all been feeling all summer. This was the hottest summer on record. We'll have more next. Morning, everyone. So glad you are with us. It's the top of the hour and something pretty remarkable is going to happen today. In just a few hours, we're going to see the first televised hearing in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants who allegedly tried to overturn his election loss in Georgia. It could give us a real clue if the former president will stand trial next month. And we're continuing to follow the breaking news out of Kyiv, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken has made a surprise visit. He's there right now. He's set to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Senate Republicans getting ready to meet with Mitch McConnell behind closed doors today as concerns grow over the GOP leader's health after he froze in front of reporters again. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. where we begin in a few hours. The first televised hearing in the Georgia election interference case will begin. This, again, is the first televised proceeding of any of the former president's criminal cases. Judge Scott McAfee says that he's going to address critical scheduling matters for the trial. It could begin as soon as October 23rd. There are 19 defendants. They've all entered not guilty pleas. They've waived their arraignments. The hearing will also look at possibly breaking up the case and trying some of the defendants separately. Yeah, that's a loaded calendar you were just looking at there. Because meanwhile, in the federal election interference case, special counsel Jack Smith is accusing former President Trump of making, quote, daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool. Joining us now to discuss is CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Ellie, I want to start with you on the federal side of things. What we've seen from prosecutors, it echoes a little bit what they were doing at the start of the case. Um, what does it mean? And will it have any teeth or substance here? Well, so in going to the judge to, yeah. to try to put a clamp on Donald Trump. So a lot of this is under seal, which means they're doing a lot of it behind the scenes. So we don't know exactly what they're asking. But what seems to me is they're trying to find some workable middle ground because Donald Trump is taking to social media daily and making aggressive, perhaps over the line pronouncements. I think prosecutors understand they can't do nothing. They can't sit idly by, let this happen without asking the judge to do something. I think prosecutors also probably understand they can't ask to lock up Donald Trump, just given the reality that he's running for president. Fair or not, special treatment, which it would be, I think they have to be aware of that reality. So my best estimate here is they're asking the judge to take some sort of middle ground. I will say one thing judges can do is they can impose financial penalties. If, you are, if a defendant is violating an order <laughs> of a court, then a judge can say, you're in contempt and I'm going to fine you a certain amount each day. That may be, but they need some middle ground. They need to do something here. Michael, to the Georgia proceedings and what we're going to see on television today, I think it's 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll air it. People will get to see it. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. important for transparency purposes, given this is a state case, cameras in the courtroom, et cetera. But can you explain to folks what is actually going to happen as they watch this today? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Today is, is nothing unusual that doesn't happen in courtrooms every day in Georgia. Uh, it's different only because of the players uh, sort of in, in the play and, and, and the media interest in the case. Um, basically, the judge will talk to the lawyers. He'll have a lot of lawyers there because of the number of the defendants. And he'll say, look, I, 
I want to find out how we're going to try this case. Uh, Madam District Attorney, what's your plan to try the case? Or do you have a certain number of defendants that you're willing to separate off? Or do you, are you still insistent that you push forward with this uh, sort of a joke October date? Uh, he'll also hear from the defense lawyers about their need to be prepared, the fact that there's no possible way that they can get prepared. They'll be building a record. The defense attorneys will be building a record to make sure that any appellate court will know that if they are pushed to trial in October, that there was no way that they could be providing effective uh, assistance to counsel to their to their clients. So um, we've had a little bit of the drama removed because the defendants will not be there. It sort of minimizes some of the circus a little bit um, since they've already uh, waived their arraignment. But this will really be almost like a status conference and scheduling conference with the judge. Uh, the difference, of course, is the, the magnitude of the case and the significance of the parties involved. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference um, to some degree, but it's important context, too, that this is a very normal procedural part of the process, but an important one nonetheless. Um, Ellie, I, right. I want to ask you something about the classified documents case. One of the former president's attorneys, Evan Corcoran, we know took voice memos about conversations with Trump. We know that from the indictment itself. Now, ABC News has transcripts of those voice memos. Now, to be clear, CNN has not reviewed them. Um, based on what we've seen up to this point and what we knew prior, what stands out to you? So I think the importance of these transcripts is it sets the stage for the obstruction of justice. Again, now we're talking about Mar-a-Lago, the classified documents case down in Florida. And remember, what Donald Trump is accused of doing is essentially hiding those documents from not just the grand jury and the FBI, but from his own lawyer. He intentionally duped his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran. And there comes this moment, according to the reporting, where Corcoran says to Trump, hey, you got a subpoena. We need to comply with this. This is serious. We need to turn everything over. And the reporting is that Trump essentially flipped out and basically became defiant. And I think if you're trying to explain to a grand jury, how do we get to the point, or to a, a trial jury, how do we get to a point when Donald Trump was obstructing justice, was hiding documents? This is the setup for that. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, we should note the Trump spokesman told ABC, quote, these notes reflect legal opinions and thoughts of the lawyer, not the client. Are anyone wondering, Michael, what about attorney-client privilege and when that can be pierced? Can you just explain how that would play in here? Well, attorney-client privilege is, is sacrosanct. And I think people are probably most familiar, if you think about a priest and a confessional and how you keep things quiet uh, or the priest is not allowed to talk about it. The difference would be if, uh, in, in the attorney-client scenario, if there's some type of effort to commit a crime mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and to involve the lawyer in a crime. So you, if you think about it from a simple terms, you can't go ask your lawyer, where can I bury the body? Uh, and get advice on where to do it and then somehow claim that's attorney-client privilege. There'd be a way around that. So I do think it raises some interesting questions. I mean, we've seen courts kind of go uh, across the line and back and forth as they've uh, navigated the attorney-client privilege uh, aspects in some of these uh, cases. Uh, I, I think this was, is one that will likely wind its way into some appellate brief at some point, uh, but it's one they'll have to deal with now as they, as they try to move forward. Okay. Michael Moore, Ali Honig, thanks to you both. Well, today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will talk behind closed doors with the Senate Republican Conference about his health. This comes after he froze in front of reporters twice in two months. We're going to tell you what the Capitol Hill doctor said and didn't say about those recent health scares. That's next. Well, in a matter of hours, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to address his recent health scares in a closed-door meeting with Senate Republicans. Now, this is after the Capitol's attending physician released a new letter yesterday. It read, quote, 
There is no evidence that you have a seizure disorder or that you experienced a stroke, TIA, or movement disorder such as Parkinson's disease. Now, when McConnell froze in front of cameras last week, it was the second time this summer. That's what that note is in reference to. The Kentucky senator later made its own passing reference to his freezing episode on the Senate floor yesterday. Take a listen. Now, one particular moment of my time back home has received its fair share of attention in the press over the past week. But I assure you, August was a busy and productive month for me and my staff back in the Commonwealth. Well, joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, I, I'm most interested in terms of the letter, uh, the tests that they mentioned. Tell us more about the tests that they would have run and, and whether this would be enough to explicitly rule out those conditions as the, the physician did. Well, so the, the first question in terms of what the tests are, it, it was pretty exhaustive, Phil. I mean, they, they did a brain MRI scan, which would be to look for evidence of a stroke or a tumor or something like that. Sounds like that was a normal result. He had an EEG, not, not an EKG, but an EEG, which is to get a snapshot in time, if you will, of what the brain's electrical activity is. I'll come back to that in a second. And then also uh, consultations, it sounds like, with four different neurologists, according to, to Manu, uh, from his reporting. I don't know that that met Senator McConnell met with those neurologists or the, the Capitol Hill doctor talked to those neurologists. But basically, after all of that, that's where they concluded. No seizure, no stroke, and no evidence of something like Parkinson's disease, a, a movement disorder. One thing I'll just tell you real quick, if, we, if you look at the video again, um, one of the things, obviously, when you look at all these tests is that there was a level of concern. I mean, when you order tests like this, it's a pretty significant level of concern. When you see this aide come up to the right side of his body, um, he's frozen. Also, his eyes are sort of deviated, but he's not looking to his right over there. It's only when the aide comes to the left side um, where we actually see him turn his head to the left. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because it sort of gives this uh, indication that there's something what we call focal going on, something that's uh, involving a specific area of his brain, which is apparently what the doctors thought as well, which is why they did all these tests. What doesn't sort of describe this is lightheadedness. That's not focal, that's general. That somebody says, oh, my head hurts, or I feel lightheaded, I gotta, I gotta sit down. That doesn't match here. Um, what they sort of concluded was that, look, he had, this, he had this fall back in the spring, got a concussion, which is a sort of, which is a brain injury, and that brain injury has led to lightheadedness and led to these episodes. Those dots don't quite connect there, and I think that's why there's still a lot of questions. Right, so this letter rules some things out, Sanjay, right, but leaves us still with a number of important questions, given his important role in our government. Yeah, I mean, look, he, first of all, he's totally entitled to his, his privacy, but if the letter was sort of designed to answer these questions, it still didn't really do it. I will say it's, there's exhaustive testing here, which is, which is really important, but take that EEG, for example, Again, it's sort of a snapshot in time. So what people will do is say, look, I have, a, I have a high level of concern for seizure. They'll actually monitor the EEG for a period of time, not just one EEG. They might even do what are called challenge tests to do things to see if you can elicit a seizure and find that on EEG. Um, Im important to do, mainly to make sure that this doesn't keep happening to him. Whatever it is, thankfully, seems to very quickly come and go. 
And, and I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's an important clue as well. Sanjay, on a different topic, but one you've spent a ton of time working on, also happening in Washington yesterday, we saw President Biden presenting a Medal of Honor, uh, but he wasn't wearing a mask. We know he was exposed to someone with COVID-19, First Lady Jill Biden. CDC guidance has constantly changed, especially early in the pandemic. The question I had as I was watching this yesterday is, what is the actual guidance right now? What should people be doing? Should Biden have been wearing a mask there? Yeah, look, I think what was particularly confusing about President Biden was that he was wearing a mask and then he took the mask off. And I think that that's understandably very confusing. To your first question, let me, let me tell you what the CDC guidance is now if you've been exposed to COVID, which basically says day zero through 10, you should be wearing a mask, watch for symptoms. If you develop any symptoms, you should test immediately. That's what the, the guidance is. Now, one caveat there is that if you're testing regularly and you're getting a, a test known as an antigen test, that can give you a good indication whether or not you have enough virus in your nose and your mouth to actually spread it. So he's probably had those tests done. And if you have those and those are negative, that can be a reason not to wear a mask. But I think, again, what was confusing about President Biden is he was wearing a mask. And then when he got around the individual in close proximity is when he took it off. That didn't make a lot of sense. Either in that case, you wear it or you don't wear it. And again, if you've been tested and the tests are negative, especially if you've had two tests over 48 hours, then you really don't need a mask because you're not likely to transmit at that point. Okay. Super helpful on all those fronts, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Thank you. You got it. So there's a new warning by the National Hurricane Center. Tropical Storm Lee expected to rapidly intensify into an extremely dangerous hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean by this weekend. Our meteorologist, Derek Van Dam, standing by. It is one after the next after the next. Yeah, that's right, Poppy. And we're about this close away from calling this and referencing this as Hurricane Lee. It's, it is gathering strength. It is organizing as we sit here and analyze the satellite imagery. Currently at 65 mile per hour. Winds, of course, you need 74 mile per hour plus to be considered a hurricane and clearly and explicitly the Hurricane Center showing a strengthening tropical storm into a hurricane into a major hurricane by this weekend. And look at this Leeward Islands. Yes, you are not included within this cone. But remember, the average error uh, from the center of the storm is roughly 150 to 200 miles at day four and day five. So if that deviates further south and west, you betcha, Puerto Rico into the Leeward Islands, you'll feel the impacts of this. At the very minimum, we will have high surf, rip currents, and large waves, potentially some coastal erosions on those areas. This is moving into an area of above average record temperature water. So that is fuel for strengthening storms. That's exactly what we anticipate with this particular uh, incoming hurricane, which will be a major hurricane by this weekend. So where does it go? Well, consensus is clustered in the near term, but the far term, the long term, we're talking day five and beyond. Well, it's all about what's happening in the upper levels of the atmosphere. A ridge of high pressure to the north is helping steer this to the west. And whether or not that breaks down, does it interact with a trough over the eastern U.S.? That is going to be big deciding factors on any potential impacts along the eastern seaboard of the U.S. for the second half of next week. Something here, this team of meteorologists at CNN will be monitoring very closely. Sure. We know you will. Thank you. Well, this morning, a new report shows that this blistering, deadly summer was far and away the hottest on record. From June to August, the planet's global average temperature was around 62 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the warmest that period has been since records began in 1940. And it comes 
after a summer riddled with extreme weather events, including the historic wildfires in Hawaii, strong winds, and a drought-stricken landscape that sent flames tearing through homes and businesses in Lahaina District in August. In Florida, obviously, there was Hurricane Idalia just last week slamming into the state's Gulf Coast, leaving behind buildings, missing walls and windows, and masses of wreckage that blocked traffic. And in Greece, Dozens of fires have been breaking out across the country since last month, scorching more than 230,000 acres and stretching firefighting forces to the absolute limit. Right now, parts of Europe are dealing with historic floods. You're looking at video from this morning in Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. CNN's Bill Weir joins us now. Bill, you were covering Idalia on the ground. You were covering uh, the Maui fires uh, in Lahaina. You've seen this uphand. Connect the dots from what Derek was walking through to this report. All of human civilization grew up in a Goldilocks climate. The world we grew up on, we had predictable patterns. We don't live on that planet anymore. We are now setting records at a broken record pace. You can feel it, you know, anywhere from Europe to Africa to Japan to most of the United States this summer. It felt like living in a giant pizza oven. And look at that. That reminds you of the famous hockey stick graph, where we will go back and look at carbon dioxide temperatures through the ages and how temperatures mirror how much planet cooking pollution we're putting into the sky. But this is a sort of record that usually gets broken by hundreds of degrees. It got shattered by three-tenths of a degree this summer. It's when everything became so obvious. I could be wrong. You're the expert. But isn't what we're feeling now in this pizza oven we're living in a, a reflection of what has already happened, what we've already done to the environment? Yes. So then... It would, it's just going to keep getting worse? Yeah, the, the, the really bad headline is, is this, this is one of the coolest summers of the rest of our lives, that this is not reversing itself. The, the polar caps are not no freezing. No matter what we do now, there's new science that says if we can stabilize the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the warming will stop relatively quickly. Michael Mann, the, the scientist who just who put out the hockey uh, stick graph, that's new science from him saying, if you can stabilize it, it won't be this delayed, stunted effect. It'll turn off pretty quick. But it has to happen fast. And if you look around, you know, Saudi Aramco, ExxonMobil, the most profitable companies in history of humanity, getting the biggest subsidies in history right now. And there's still the society's license to keep burning because they're, they're just fossil fuels are everywhere, so entrenched in our lives. And these companies show no interest of change in business models, regardless of what we're experiencing. And beyond the, you know, you mentioned one U.S. company, Exxon, Saudi. This is about globally what choices we and other leader and leaders are making, right? So if we Absolutely. make a lot of changes in the U.S., it doesn't make as big an impact unless China, India do the same. This is all hands on deck. It's, it's not just one moonshot. It's every country trying to achieve this at the same time. But historically, the United States is the biggest offender and has the moral you know, responsibility as the richest country in human history to step up and lead on this. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see that. You're starting to see huge innovations uncorked by the Inflation Reduction Act. And there's uh, governments in Australia and Brazil have gone back to trying to get back in touch with the earth and, and take care of it. But everybody's going to feel this regardless of where you live, if you live on the coast or not, uh, because insurance now is affected. Five major insurance companies this week told the regulators that they're going to stop covering fire in California, for example, really? or hurricanes in Florida. They'll still cover your house against theft or whatever, but 
the major disasters that threaten these communities won't be insurable uh, in this new yeah, world. The entire business model is unsustainable. You know, it is. And then what happens to your mortgage? What happens then to property values and tax bases, which pay your cops and your teachers? All of it. Uh, and when you want to live in paradise and you say it's worth the risk, what happens if you have to assume all that risk on your, on your nest egg, your yeah. home? Uh, these are really dangerous times, and we should be talking about it with an urgency, I think. Well, you have been for many <laughs> years, but it's amazing because you've been the one who's shown us so many of these incredible places around the world, paradise. Yeah. And then you literally go back when paradise is burning. So. And we'll be doing that from Maui yeah. to whatever happens with this uh, tropical storm, Lee. But uh, knowledge is power, hopefully. There you go. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Appreciate it. So the special counsel, Jack Smith, accusing the former president of making daily statements that could prejudice future jurors in the January 6th case. There's a new poll, poll that shows, though, a conviction in that case or others likely would not impact his support from Republicans. Harry Enton with this morning's number is next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We're following a new development this morning. Special counsel Jack Smith is alleging that former President Donald Trump's, quote, extrajudicial daily extrajudicial statements are threatening to taint the jury pool in the federal 2020 election subversion case. Now, we don't know the legal implications of that, at least not at the moment. But based on new CNN polling, there are signs that it really would put a dent in Trump's political support, at least among Republicans. That same poll showing that Trump still has a massive lead in the Republican primary, and there are certainly no signs of that lead shrinking anytime soon. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton is here with a closer look at those poll numbers from the CNN poll. I want to first differentiate, this is not actually the morning number. This is a polling deep dive, and I think people need to separate those two things. This is a serious polling deep dive with me and, of course, Philip over there. Take a look here, the top choices for Republican nominee. Look who's at the top, a familiar face, Donald Trump. Look at that, 52%. Ron DeSantis, 18%. Nobody else even close, not in the double digits. But it's not just the top line here with Trump having a well over 30-point advantage. It's in the crosstabs. So you know the crosstabs, your demographic groups, age, race, education, et cetera. 15 groups with a crosstab. How many groups does Trump lead in our poll? 15. He leads across the board doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, whether you have a college education, whether you don't, whether your income's below $50,000 or above it, Trump leads with all the groups. Uh, one of the main questions I've had is, you know, well, actually, I've just asked this. The poll asked how likely people are to actually support uh, their first choice candidates. What do we learn there? Yeah. I mean, so perhaps you're looking for some weakness yeah. in Donald Trump's support, right? We'll definitely support your first choice candidate in the primary. Donald Trump, 83% of his supporters. Locked in. Locked in. in. DeSantis' supporters, just 54%. All others, 37%. So this 83%, these Trump voters, there are a lot of them. They're really locked in. And more than that, Phil, they're becoming more locked in. So we'll definitely support Trump. You go back to March of 2023, 75%. June of 2023, 79%. Now we go to August. What do we have? 83% of Trump voters are definitely supporting him in the primary. When you look at this poll, look, I try to find anything to move the story forward. Maybe something might shift in this race. At this particular point, looking at the polling data, at least in the Republican primary, I can't find it, Phil. It's it's such a critical point, something I I actually want to ask you about. Maybe we can do it tomorrow for the morning number, the actual morning number in terms of the historical context precedent here. I think that's uh, critical. Harry Anton, thanks so much. Thank you, Phil. Poppy? Harry, you just got your homework assignment. (laughs) (laughs) Like I have that authority. (laughs) 
Clearly. <laughs> Let's bring in CNN political commentator, New York Magazine columnist, Errol Lewis, and national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price. Errol, let me just start with you on what you make of what the numbers tell us. Well, look, we've seen this sort of building, and this is bringing us to sort of a high wave of this phenomenon, which is that the Republican Party is going to back Donald Trump in the primary. Uh, there would have to be a sort of a historic collapse for him not to be the nominee. The first of the contest is coming up in a short you know, 131 days. It's really 90 days plus another month. Uh, and we'll start to see this play out probably um, despite his legal problems. Because when you go down to the cross tabs and you look for the follow up, well, gee, what if he's, you know, now he's indicted? What if he has to go to trial? What if he's convicted mm -hmm. and so forth? The numbers actually don't change that much. They right. want him to be the candidate. You know who reads through the, all the cross tabs? Harry. This guy. <laughs> It's fascinating. It, it is okay. Yes, but like that's a, that's the most interesting part it's of true. the polls. But it also underscores. I think that's why it's why Harry is so great always. And, and Errol's point. But I, I don't know. I was trying to think. Certainly not even in 2016. Certainly not in 2020. Um, this very clear cut of a this person is going to be the Republican nominee unless something that no one could ever imagine, uh, perhaps like an asteroid. <laughs> is coming at this point. Why am I wrong on that? I mean, I'm not sure you are, and I'm not sure an asteroid even changes. I mean, we've got historic indictments of this leading candidate, and we have stasis in the polls. Nothing is changing. What's interesting is you kind of have to ask, why are these other people still running, or why are they still trying to run as Donald Trump when he has solidified everything and they're not peeling anything off? They're not, for the most part, offering anything different than what he is. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, look, they, they are waiting, in fact, for an asteroid, uh, whether it's a legal asteroid or some other kind of scenario that will uh, shake up the race, perhaps uh, sideline Donald Trump or even get him to sort of to drop out. Most people, if they were facing the kind of serious charges that he's facing in four different jurisdictions, would say, you know what, let me attend to making sure that I get through this legally and come out the other side with my freedom intact. Uh, Donald Trump is not like most people. So to the extent that he has this complicated way of trying to sort of merge his legal defense as, uh, with his political strategy, he's not going to drop out. And then that leaves a bunch of candidates who, like Tim Scott, maybe want to raise their stature uh, or like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, maybe want to sort of angle towards some kind of cabinet position or a speaking gig or a podcast or, or something uh, like that. number two. Or a, a spot on the ticket, that's right. And, and then, you know, and then people like Mike Pence, who, you know, I mean, where else is he gonna go? He's had the number two job. He's gonna try for the number one job, even against long odds. He, you never know, lightning can strike, that sort of a thing. But look, Donald Trump is in effect the incumbent, uh, as far as Republicans are concerned. And incumbent presidents don't really get a lot of challenges. That, I think, is what we're seeing here. Yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting way of framing it. If you look at what Pres President Biden is facing, obviously questions about his age, there's no real challenge. Obviously, he's running against people. Um, Michelle, I wanted to connect this because I, I think the, the just kind of guerrilla nature of Trump's candidacy in the Republican primary actually connects to what's going on in Washington in terms of Capitol Hill right now, right? Like, he, he controls a large segment, at least a notable segment, of the House Republican conference. They have some major negotiations that they're heading into. They have to fund the government by the end of the month. They also want uh, to launch some of them to launch an impeachment inquiry into the current president. I want you to listen to what Matt Gates, who's a Trump mm -hmm. ally, said about Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
when we get back to Washington in, in the coming weeks, uh, we have got to seize the initiative. That means forcing votes on impeachment. And if Kevin McCarthy stands in our way, uh, he may not have the job long. This has always been the thing hanging over Speaker McCarthy. Since he got through 15 votes and became Speaker, the ability with one single member uh, to kind of call him out and try and take him down as Speaker. Do you think the threat's real right now? I think it is real. I mean, again, those 15 votes, you know, that wasn't that long ago, and that he has a very tenuous grasp on his leadership. Uh, the, the faction that is loyal to Donald Trump in the House is very loyal to him. And uh, McCarthy, you know, he's left him out to dry. Trump has left McCarthy out to dry a few times. And McCarthy has been unflinchingly loyal. Keep, keep in mind, on the other side, there are about 18 Republicans who won districts that uh, Joe Biden won. There's a quartet of them here in New York. They don't like to hear this kind of talk from the Matt Gateses of the world. They don't necessarily want to go all in on impeachment or attack the leadership and so forth. They need a little bit of calm to assure their own reelection. And so uh, McCarthy's going to have to sort of balance those two factions within his party. McCarthy doesn't have the votes. He doesn't have 218 for impeachment. And this is the, sorry, I'm going to, I'll stop. Cross tabs. <laughs> Cross tabs. Cross tabs. It's, it's the primary versus general election argument and it extends to that, which I think is important. This isn't just a primary. All right, Michelle, Errol, thanks guys. Nice. Appreciate it. Well, a new ad campaign is urging America's veterans struggling with mental health to ask for help. Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough joins us next on the White House's new program. Stay with us. The Department of Veterans Affairs is launching a new ad campaign this month, encouraging veterans to seek help for mental health struggles before it is too late. September, of course, is National Suicide Prevention Month, and the veteran suicide rate in 2020 was 57% higher than the non-veteran adult rate. That's according to new government data. The new Don't Wait, Reach Out campaign is working to change that. Have you ever helped a fellow veteran? Of course. Yes. Have you ever asked for help yourself? It's always tough, right? I always feel like I can solve my own problems, but eventually, you know, you just can't deal with it on your own. And you start to question, maybe people would be better off without me. When you realize that you're not alone, once you take that first step, there's so much support. Well, joining us now is the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough. Secretary, thank you very much for being with us, especially on this issue, because when you look at the numbers from the VA, more than 17 veterans die from suicide every single day. Can you talk about the new efforts to try to change that? Yeah, Poppy, thanks so much for having me. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about this. Look, our vets are warriors, uh, and they're trained to look out for their uh, mates, to look out uh, for their unit. And too often uh, they put uh, themselves uh, in the background rather than in the foreground. And so what we're saying is, hey, don't wait, reach out. Uh, we have our website, va.gov forward slash reach, as a tool to help veterans and their families uh, take that important first step to reach out for help before it's time of crisis. And that's our simple message. Don't wait, reach out. Mr. Secretary, I think the alignment between the Pentagon and the VA uh, and this issue specifically, obviously, writ large is very important. We've seen Secretary Austin make mental health and seeking assistance on mental health a, a, a critical component. Have you seen kind of the second order effects on the VA side? Do you feel like 
having the uh, ability to connect with the, on these issues with uh, active service members is helping on the back end uh, with the VA. Very much so. Obviously, this is a major priority for Secretary Austin. I've appreciated his partnership in this. He and I are routinely meeting not just with uh, veterans and military families, uh, also with active duty units uh, to talk about this. He has a very simple message, which we do too, which is your health is mental health. Mental health is your health. Mm -hmm. And so let's stop uh, somehow disaggregating these two questions and address our whole health. That's uh, really the bottom line message here. Also, let's not wait for a crisis. Please, don't wait, reach out. Yeah, and that is the message of this campaign. It's been two years since the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I'm wondering if you could speak to what you have seen as uh, the toll on those veterans who have come home, especially when it comes to mental health. Look, we have seen real uh, manifestations of moral injury because uh, so many of our troopers dedicated so much of their lives uh, to that remarkable effort in Afghanistan. And so we have seen a big impact. But I'll tell you what I've also seen is mm -hmm. across the country, veterans still fighting to get their interpreters, their drivers, uh, Afghans yeah. who worked with them, make sure that they get them here to the U.S. We see that in every community across the country. I'm really proud of the work that our vets are doing to, to watch out for uh, as I said, their interpreters, their drivers, their mates. Uh, it's really uh, America at its finest. Uh, Mr. Secretary, what degree of concern do you have about the, the funding fight? I feel like at some point, uh, this is a yearly thing, sometimes in every two or three months thing. Do you see that this has a tangible effect in terms of agency operations, especially on this issue in particular? You know, we feel uh, very good about uh, the progress we've made over the course of the last several years. Under President Biden, we've had historic levels of funding uh, that's been supported by Republicans and Democrats. I'm hoping the same will happen this year. Uh, in fact is, Phil, I think you're aware of this, we also have advanced appropriations, especially on health care. So we're in good shape uh, as it relates to uh, what our veterans will need especially with access to emergency mental health care, uh, which is why I feel very comfortable being out here today uh, saying, look, don't wait for a crisis. Make sure you reach out. Visit us at va.gov forward slash reach. And let's make sure that we're giving you and your family the tools that you need to prepare for those crises. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, thank you very much for being with us on this issue. We appreciate it. Happy, Phil. Thank you so much. Of course. And just a reminder, if you or anyone you know and love needs help, if they're having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline. You just need to dial 988. Ahead, a deputy U.S. marshal is calling the manhunt for the convicted murderer in uh, right outside of Philadelphia a dangerous game of tactical hide-and-seek. We've got new details about what law enforcement is doing. And a judge handing former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio the longest sentence of all connected to the January 6th attack on the Capitol and his lawyer is pointing the finger at former President Trump. Stay with us. Well, this just in overnight, multiple Michigan State police cars were set on fire and hit by rifle rounds in northern Michigan. Suspect 
is still at large. No troopers were in the vehicles when the incident occurred. Police posted these images on social media saying, quote, the suspect is considered armed and dangerous, and it's described as a white male wearing camouflage. He was last seen driving a silver Honda CRV. So take a look at this. These are live pictures right now from a helicopter over Chester County, Pennsylvania. That is where the search for the convicted murderer who escaped prison seven days ago is ongoing right now. There are two school districts there that are closed again this morning as about 200 law enforcement officers search for this killer. The U.S. Marshal Service says the goal is to stress him out of hiding. This is a dangerous game of tactical hide and seek. This is a dangerous, dangerous man. He's got nothing to lose. But I can tell you this, his desperateness will not outlast the resolve of our law enforcement officers here. CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller is here. Seven days. And he's in, they think, a few mile radius. Why can no one find him? Uh, Look at the history of these things. You had uh, Michael Burnham, who was a survivalist. Uh, It took them 10 days to find him. And, you know, that was a very well-resourced search and you know it was a neighbor's dog who came across him um, on a trail and the neighbors passed by and pretended not to know who he was and called police eric Fryn, 2014 that was a 48-day 12 million dollar hunt for a domestic terrorist that ended in a incredible and tragic shootout with state police so seven days is not out of the realm remember eric rudolph the olympic park bomber ran into the national the nantahala national forest and, you know, was caught five years later after the most extensive government manhunt in, in a wooded area that anybody could remember in history. So I'm not panicking at 10 days. He's in a relatively small box. He's under-resourced. And at some point, he's going to run out of gas, and they're going to find him. So it's not, you're not surprised by the fact that that small box seemed to expand yesterday. I think our Danny Freeman is on the ground, said there were signs it might be expanding again today. This isn't like a net that just closest around them? Because like, that's what I had in my head. I don't think the box is expanding as much as it's moving. Okay. You know, um, the failure part of this is they don't have them. The success part of it is he's feeling the pressure of being surrounded and trying to penetrate those per- perimeters. Um, and they're moving with him because the sightings are working. You have a very engaged public there. So what you're missing in the urban environment that you would have you know, informants on the street, electronic surveillance, you know, cell phone tracking. You're probably missing that here, but you've got everybody in any perimeter looking for him and calling at the slightest uh, sight of something suspicious. Officials have not yet said how he escaped from prison. Hmm. That's striking to me. But wouldn't that also help people know what he would have gotten away like with if he was carrying anything, what he was wearing at the time? Well, I mean, what we know is he's been evolving, which sure. is through house break-ins, he's come up with additional clothing. The idea that he was captured on film shirtless the other night yeah. kind of denied them a new description or a color of a garment to give out. Um, he's got that backpack, so we don't know what kind of changes of clothes he has. And there's probably a reason why they haven't told us how he escaped. Why? And this is, is not a question that I haven't asked people who should know the answer to. <laughs> My kids the- were asking me that. I mean, they shouldn't know about this story anyways, I suppose, too young for it. But they were even saying, how did he get out? And I was like, we don't know. Well, on the practical side, he's five feet tall and he weighs 120 pounds and can probably fit into places that I can't. It can definitely fit into places I can't. Um, It's not a funny thing. On on the other hand, um, 
the fact that the warden uh, was put on leave, the fact that the deputy warden is running it, the fact that they have taken a position, logical one, which is job one is to get him back. We'll worry about how he got out later and who's to blame and what happened and so on. Okay. Uh, but predictable is preventable, and something went wrong there because he wasn't supposed to get out. Can I ask you about, before we run out of time, Enrique Tarrio, the sentence that he was given yesterday, the longest sentence for seditious conspiracy. Um, what's your take on where the judge landed there? Well, the judge landed right in the middle. The government asked for 33 years, and you know his lawyers asked for less, and he, he split the difference. But it's a significant sentence, and it's a big message that will be read two ways, by people who are thinking of starting some best pocket group and taking on you know the overthrow of the government. Uh, it's probably a bad idea. And from others, they'll say, this is the difference that you know Trump supporters are treated with. But it's a, it's a strong signal. John Miller, thank Thanks, you. Mark. Very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. We're glad to have you. We'll see you right back here tomorrow morning. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.